Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Today's show is brought to you by us, the Choose Yourself Network. One of the most common questions covered on that podcast and by our guests is about self-publishing. James has written a lot on the topic and sold hundreds of thousands of books by leaving the traditional publishers behind. It takes a little guts to take on that risk, but James has narrowed all of the secrets of self-publishing your own bestseller into a single checklist. You can get it at www.jamesaltucher.com bestseller. If you're thinking about writing or just want to publish your own ideas, it's a must-read. Check it out today at jamesaltucher.com slash bestsellers and download your free guide. That's jamesaltucher.com backslash bestseller, B-E-S-T-S-E-L-L-E-R. Thanks for listening, and now here's today's show. Don't let the mysteries of life scare you away. Instead, ask Altucher. Here's James Altucher. Hey, so hey. How's, how's my audio? Is everything coming in fine? Everything's coming in fine, and we're already recording. This app on the phone, like, records automatically. Okay, great. Okay, so so Scott Young, the the who did the infamous MIT experiment, you basically took $2,000 in less than a year, and you completed, using their, their free course curriculum online, you completed a four-year computer science degree at MIT. So instead of spending $300,000, you spent $2,000. <laughs> well, let me let me explain a bit more briefly because it does come with a few caveats, and I think it's important to understand those, but I think it's also important to understand uh, what I was trying to do. So MIT uh, puts a lot of their courses, as well as a lot of big Ivy League universities, up online for free. Basically, uh, the way they used to do it, was uh, for the last 10 years, they've been doing it through this program called OpenCourseWare, where they'll just tell the professor, hey, we'd like to record the lecture videos and just, you know, all the PDFs for the assignments, the PDFs for the solution sets you use. We just want to put them online, and then that way anybody can go and essentially take this class. Why would they do that? Why would they do that, though, considering uh, they charge so much for these classes? Why would they just put them up for free? Because they know that nobody cares about skills. People, job <laughs> employers just care about the piece of paper. So the, so the skills for them actually have no value. It's just a piece of paper from MIT that they know has the value. Well, I think, yeah, there is a signaling reason for that. But I think also part of the reason is that MIT and these Ivy League universities are turning down huge volumes of students. So they're not they're not having a problem of well if we put this stuff up for free not not enough people are going to apply to MIT and I think everybody would like to have an MIT education in the school they could have it and I think their idea is that we're going to get our brand out there our sort of way of teaching our materials and that's going to help the institution by you know promoting the MIT uh, school philosophy by getting out these um, this material for free. 
So more specifically, what I did is I basically just decided, you know, they have all this material for free. Trying to make an exact equivalency with an MIT degree is not going to be perfectly possible. What I'll do is I'll make a curriculum that same number of credit hours, main same requirements, and just try to pass the final exam to do the programming project. So it's a bit of a simplification of a real degree, but I think uh, it has, you know, largely the same, learning the same stuff, learning the same classes, learning a lot of the same material that an actual MIT student would do. But of course, you're not going to Boston. You're not uh, paying all the money for tuition. So, so uh, a, cu a couple of comments. One is on every article where there was comments about you afterwards, a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the MIT students uh, basically criticized you. <laughs> like they hated the fact that they were spending two hundred thousand dollars and you spent almost nothing. And of course, you didn't get the exact same education that they got. They were there. They they took humanities classes. They became friends with each other and networked and so on. But you got the essentially the same computer science skills. It's it's not like the professors can interact one-on-one -on -one with every single student there. Yeah, I think there's two parts of it. So one of it is the thing that you're talking about, this kind of uh, MIT students are people who have played by the rules their whole life and been very good at it. You know, they got into MIT, they got into this incredible institution. And in many ways, I'm doing something that's breaking the rules. And so whether or not they can put their finger on what they dislike about it, um, I think that there's something kind of, oh, you broke the rules, you're supposed to apply to MIT, go to school, there's all this curriculum, that's part of it. And then the second part is that uh, I was a little bit more ambitious. I decided, well, considering I'm making this simplification to I want to pass the final exam to the programming project, so I don't have to attend lectures on a particular schedule, I can use the assignments as sort of as a learning tool, but I don't have to, you know, write essays or give presentations and stuff. Um, I'm taking a bit of a shortcut, so I decide, well, if I'm taking these shortcuts, maybe I could do it in a year instead of over the normal four-year process that an MIT student would do. And so I think just the fact that not only am I breaking rules in terms of uh, I'm not going the road you're supposed to go in terms of learning this information, but I'm also saying, hey, maybe I could get most of the value I wanted to get out of it in a quarter of the time, I think also upsets some sensibility. And uh, do you feel like you did learn computer science like I know you had taken some computer courses before but like do you do you feel like you got the knowledge yeah definitely I feel like the of what MIT was teaching I felt like I learned the best I could now does that mean that I know everything about computer science obviously not like I think someone who's a professional programmer they have a lot more specific skills than I do if you went to get a PhD, obviously you have more skills than I do in theoretical knowledge. Scott, sorry to interrupt, but let me just correct that. So I'm a computer science major, and I went to graduate school sure. for computer science, and you probably know more computer science than me at this point. <laughs> well, well, I don't know about that, but I, I would say that uh, what I did learn, and what I think I really like about the MIT curriculum, is they give you this very broad understanding of a lot of the, the theory of computer science, of mathematics, and in science in general. Like, a lot of the things that I had to do in the MIT curriculum, which are not part and parcel of other computer science programs, is I had to take a class in physics, I had to take some classes in electrical engineering, there was one class where you had to, using a simulator, you had to build a CPU from scratch, which is not really what they teach in a lot of schools that focus more on programming. 
So I really like that about the MIT curriculum. There's pros and cons to it, but I think in terms of what an MIT learns going through the actual classes, I would say that I got um, most, if not, you know, very comparable to what they would be learning. And do you think an employer, if you said this to an employer, and let's say you're up against kind of an MIT computer science student, do you think the employer would, would actually say, hey, this guy has a lot of initiative and he's got the education, as opposed to just saying this other guy has just got the education, or would he err on the side of the uh, degree? So that's a really interesting question because when I finished this challenge and it came out, now I'm a writer. I, that's what I do for a living. That's what I did before this challenge. It's what I do now. So I didn't really have any particular desire to pursue programming as a profession. I just wanted to be able to practice this and work on my own project. But when I, I did the challenge and after I was finished, uh, it, one of the videos that I posted became popular on Reddit and it was getting tons and tons of comments from and the majority of the comments were this exact thing. They were like, you know, it's too bad that this guy put in all this work and no employer would even consider him uh, without having an actual degree. And interestingly, in those same comments, there were HR representatives for firms saying, this is exactly the kind of person we want, someone who can teach himself things quickly, shows initiative, shows that kind of stuff. And I actually spoke to someone under the condition of not many, but who works in one of the big uh, uh, software companies. And he uh, was, you know, trying to encourage me, hey, you know, if, if you want to apply, I can get you an interview here. I think they'd be really interested in having you there uh, at the company. So it was very interesting to see this dichotomy that the general public's reaction was that there's no way anyone would hire you if you did this without a degree. And the people who were actually hiring saying, like, look, you know, this is actually the kind of person that we would want at our team. So for me, it was very interesting to see that contrast. That's funny. And and now, so that was, you finished that in 2012. Now in 2015, the landscape's even better because I think, A, there's more acceptance of, slightly more acceptance of people who don't have college degrees. And B, the online educational resources are even greater, like Coursera is, is greater, Udemy or, or Udacity, all these different sites, lynda.com, uh, all, all of these sites are much more, uh, offer many more courses than they did in 2012. So I think you can get even more sophisticated in how you teach yourself online than even back in 2012. Oh, the landscape's changed entirely. You know, it's it's kind of crazy to talk about this because I only did this a few years ago. But when I did this, none of these uh, MOOC or these massively open online course platforms existed. So there was no edX, there was no Coursera, there was no... Um, system where you could go in there, take the class, it would be graded independently, there would be someone to like give you a certificate if you pay for the, you know, the special track where you get a certificate after. There was no accreditation. So I had to, basically mine was a lot more makeshift. I had to just download this material, grade the exams, you know, post them online for people to review. It was a real do-it-yourself process. And so that's why whenever I hear people being overly pessimistic about online education, I feel like you know, it's only been around really in this format for a couple of years. And even I think when I did it, it was probably about the earliest that you could have done something like this. And so now I think the idea that someone could get maybe not a degree, but, you know, huge volumes of education independently verified uh, for by third party for free or for very low cost is going to be, um, if not possible right now, it's going to be the norm pretty soon. 
like, let's say, let's say you have kids and I don't know, let's say 15 years from now, they're ready for, uh, to make a decision about a college and they're either going to spend $300,000 on MIT or they can do what you did. What would you encourage them to do? What would you force them to do? I don't know. Well, first of all, I would say that uh, I'm not in the, my, my philosophy towards that is that, you know, my kids would make the decision for themselves. But I think I wouldn't tell anyone to turn down an opportunity to go to MIT. I think if you get into that school, that's a great education. I think what I would stress is that um, going to school and now, I think more than anything, is about getting that piece of paper, getting that degree. However, teaching yourself the skills you need to succeed in the workplace that's something that is now, I think, quite separate. And for me, I do think that a degree is still important for some fields. If I want to be an engineer or a lawyer, uh, not having a degree is not an option. So I wouldn't tell somebody who wants to pursue those things that, okay, you can just do what I did. But on the other hand, I think that even if you are an engineer or even if you are a lawyer, the, the environment that we're living in now in the career space is that you need to be updating your skills constantly. You need to be learning new things constantly. And this idea that, okay, I'm going to go back to school and learn X, or I'm going to take this course in X, is just not practical for a lot of people, and yet they're being held back by sort of their new colleagues that have learned things that they're, they didn't have a chance to learn in school. So I think that really there's this environment of continuous self-education, which is really become easier and easier with these new platforms. And it, you've kind of evolved into the next step, which is learning languages. Uh, so what, what are you, what are you doing in, in that area? Cause you're, you're, it seems like you're very, uh, multilingual. Yeah. So that was, uh, after the MIT challenge finished, uh, it actually originally just started. I had a, a friend who was, uh, going to take a gap year before he went and did a, a master's. And we were talking about, you know, like while we can, let's, let's do a trip. Let's plan some travel. And then this idea came around of, well, what if we wanted to, uh, try to learn languages is sort of the orienting, like that would be what the trip was about. And then a lot of conversations and sort of a year of planning later, we set out to do uh, this project where not only were we going to try to learn languages, but the way that we were going to try to learn languages was through complete immersion. Basically, when we would go to the country, we wouldn't speak in English, not even to each other, just the language that we're trying to learn. And uh, that became a year of, uh, of our lives uh, learning these languages. And how, how did you start off if you didn't know, like, the, the the language? Like, how would you communicate to even each other? So, good question. Um, the truth is, uh, for for all of the languages, we do, did do a little bit of preparation. So, uh, we would do probably about uh, 20 hours or so learning some basic phrases, just, you know, something you could probably do in an audio tape on your way to work, uh, monthly commute. Not a lot of practice. Certainly not enough to even be able to do very basic things. And then what we did is with that basic knowledge, basically we would sit down when we had to talk to each other, we would have our phones open, open up a, a dictionary application or a Google Translate, and we would just use that. And that became sort of this basis. And as you say the words and the phrases more and more often, as you use them in more situations, they just become automatic. You don't have to think about them anymore until actually surprisingly quickly, you're now only looking up sort of obscure words or obscure phrases, you're actually most of the time you're able to get by without having to look up anything. Well, what's the best app for, or what's the best learning applications for starting uh, to learn a language right now? 
Sure. I would say that um, this is going to be kind of a surprise, but one of my favorites, and it gets some criticism for not being 100% accurate, but I give it points for being very, uh, very easy to use, is just getting Google Translate on your phone. And I think the real advantage of the app here is that if you're putting yourself in conversation situations, putting yourself in situations where you have to communicate, you just open the app, you type in what you need to say, and uh, in, in the beginning, it can help you a little bit with grammar as well. The problem with dictionaries is often uh, just knowing the words is only half of the problem. If you know Spanish, for example, uh, you, you know you have to conjugate all the verbs. You know you have to match masculine and feminine. You know you have to do these things. And so it's not always possible to just word for word translate for English and have that make sense in Spanish. So using Google Translate can also help you bridge that gap until you get to a later stage where, okay, now I can just use a dictionary because I understand the grammar uh, well enough. So you want to my sort of you want to recommend like Duolingo? Would you recommend Duolingo or anything? Duolingo is okay. Duolingo is okay. Another one that's good is Anki. I like Anki because it's a little bit more flexible. Uh, Memorize is good. All these things are good. I don't want to say that they're bad applications, but I think sometimes it can be distractions because they get you into thinking that what you're trying to do when you're learning language is an intellectual challenge, that the main challenge is that I have to memorize all these words and phrases. And what the real challenge in learning a language, from my experience, is this social challenge, this idea of speaking something that you are not very confident in with someone who is confident in that language, dealing with the confusion, the embarrassment, dealing with the fact that ah, I don't really want to speak to that person. If you can get through that, then a lot of the stuff that you do learn in Duolingo that you learn in Memorize and these other applications will just come through that process. And I, I would say that they are useful, but a lot of people choose, choose to use them as a substitute because they're more, they're less socially threatening. They're less, uh, they, they don't in, inspire the same kind of fear, the same kind of nervousness that actually speaking to someone does. And so how do you get so so given that you have the basic oh, actually the first question I want to ask is what sure. I know in Spanish you need to know okay this is male this is female all that stuff but what if you decide not to learn that so cuz you're you're obviously going to be no matter what you're going to be the dumb american anyway so why not just say okay everything is male or everything is female and i don't care what people think about me cuz they're going to think bad anyway they're still they're still going to understand you even if you don't kind of have the right sexuality for every object oh definitely and actually it was funny when we went to spain um so i'll have to explain a little bit about uh, spanish grammar but there's basically every verb has uh, this a form called the infinitive, which is like in English saying like to want, to love, to have. It it doesn't refer to any person doing the action. Um, and you you cannot say verbs like you can't just say yo uh, pedir for like I ask in Spanish. You can't do that. Um, it, it's not grammatical. It sounds strange. It's, it's very weird. But uh, my my friend Vat, because he didn't he didn't learn a lot of it like book learning stuff. He's learning it through practice. Probably for about the first two or three weeks maybe even getting towards a month, he literally only used that form <laughs> to speak to everyone. They understood him for the most part. And then once he got, once he was comfortable speaking, then it was, okay, now is the time to like, actually I have to improve this. I actually have to start saying things properly. I have to start improving your, how, how well you speak. And the same thing with masculine and feminine. I think worrying about those things too much is kind of a mistake. Your goal initially is just to get people to understand what you're saying at all. Uh, not worry about correctness. 
Correctness can come a little bit later down the road because I found, contrary to some other people who believe differently, I do think that uh, if you are aware of it, it is possible to correct your mistake uh, for grammar later, uh, even if you've been making mistakes earlier. So you mentioned earlier you're making a living now as a writer. So how is how is that working? Like how do so you're traveling around, you're taking MIT classes, you're doing all this. What do you actually? I know you have a very popular uh, blog. Uh, what's the URL for it so people know? Uh, ScottHYoung.com. Scott with two T's, HYoung.com. And so so how are you how are you monetizing your writing? Right. So I've actually been uh, writing from before I did the MIT Challenge, before I did this uh, this other project. And basically, I have uh, e-books, and I also have uh, some courses that I sell uh, infrequently on the website. And luckily, the website's large enough that I don't have to be, you know, spamming money. It's just I can just sell those things uh, on the back end, and, and I'm on the front end, I can focus on, you know, writing articles, writing essays about uh, learning better and productivity and also, you know, sharing these experiments that I've been doing. And are you selling books on like productivity or what, what's the, what's the main thing you're selling? Like what's the highest source of income? Yeah. The, the main, the main thing that I'm selling that I make money from is I have uh, courses that basically teach um, uh, studying, studying skills or learning philosophy. So a way that you can approach learning any subject, it guides you through sort of a process of giving you specific Tactics that I've sort of come across in my own research and also my own experience uh, doing these kinds of projects. This is a better way of doing this, and uh, I teach those in those courses and, and ebooks. And is that good enough? Like you, you were obviously you were able to quit your job, and this is like your full time uh, source of of living. Yeah, it's been full time for the last, uh, I believe, I want to say four or five years. I guess uh, it's been full time, and it's uh, it's been doing quite well. I think. There really, really is now nowadays if you have something that people are interested in and you can build an audience, I think it is possible to, you know, do make a living from it. And I think that that's, you know, a good alternative to just uh, having to do everything on the side. If I remember correctly from your blog, I think you said it took you five years to get to the point where you were making a living and then another three years before you were making like a good living. Yeah, well, this is the thing, too, and I, I wouldn't say that my timeline is representative for everyone. I, I, took, uh, I took a long time to figure things out, but I think that the big thing about building a business online or building a presence online, I'm sure you know, is that it takes time. It, it takes time for Google to pick you up. It takes time for other people to be aware of you, and this growth compounds. So when you first start writing, nobody's reading you, so nobody can link to you. Nobody can give you that break. But you slowly accumulate more traffic, you slowly, and there's not like this is one breakthrough moment, but there's just lots of little moments where maybe you'll get picked up by a larger blog or a new uh, site will link to you or you'll, you know, be asked to come on a podcast or something. And then that gives more people find out about you. And I think if you're writing stuff that people find helpful, find interesting, you know, think is useful, then uh, I believe that you can make a go of it. Well, that's great. Well, well, Scott, where do you want people to find you the the best? Like, so scotthyoung.com is kind of like your internet home. Yes, scotthyoung.com. You can find out about the MIT Challenge this year without English language learning project, and I have you know tons and tons. I have over a thousand free articles uh, explaining you know my philosophy towards productivity and uh, and learning and. <laughs> 
And uh, look, I actually hope my kids do what you did and just kind of like learn kind of home college, like learn from home uh, on their own. And that's what I hope they eventually do for cheaper. Thanks. Thanks. Well, I hope that it becomes something that, you know, everybody can do. Yeah, because also there's there's the whole like you said you're gonna allow your kids obviously to to make their own choices, which which makes sense and sounds reasonable. But at the same time, your kids might not be at the age of eighteen. Kids are not they might not be mature enough to make a three hundred thousand dollar debt decision. <laughs> you know, it's a big decision for them. They're gonna waste four or five years of their life and three hundred thousand dollars, and they might not have. I know this from the emails I get. They, they're going to change their careers anyway after they graduate college. Yeah. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. And when I'm faced that with that bill for three hundred thousand dollars, I might change my previous policy. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks very much, Scott. Thanks for agreeing to uh, join me on the podcast, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Scott. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.